Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The idea of belonging. Ah, there are so many different kinds of belonging. Many of us belong to families, either those of our birth or those that we choose to create along the way. We often belong to some kind of tribe. It could be as small as like my squad, my girl crew, those people who I know will help me bury the dead body with no questions. Like my tribe could be everybody from a certain country or everybody who's part of a race to which I identify and belong. There's so many different kinds of tribes. Then we have that kind of belonging that so many of us long for, belonging at work. You know, that feeling that maybe you once had and hopefully you have now and hopefully you will continue to have in the future, that great place where we got to do work that was really meaningful to us with people that we knew had our backs. Which leads me right into our guest for today. Matthew Cahill is the leader of the Precipio Company. One of the things that I love about Matthew is he's got really deep expertise in both cognitive, social, and workplace biases. And his understanding is based in the belief, if you have a brain, you have a bias. Isn't that awesome? It's one of the things that I think is so great about his work is this concept of destigmatizing bias, because it's truly that simple. If we have a brain, we have a bias. And Matthew works with executives to help reduce mental mistakes, strengthen workplace relationships, and disrupt existing biases within all kinds of different things. So he might be looking at HR processes, he might be looking at meeting protocols, he might be looking at corporate policies. There's all kinds of different ways in which our biases come into play. And Matthew has demonstrated success with some really big clients that you've heard of, like Salesforce and LinkedIn. You guys ever heard of those? As well as some small and mid-sized companies that are really working to create more inclusive workplaces that work smarter, generate more revenue, and move from bias to belonging. Welcome, Matthew. 
Wow. That was like a thunderous introduction. <laughs> man, man, I thought I gave overflated. <laughs> very, very, very overflattering. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, introduction. I like overflated. That's awesome. My goodness. You but just. But see, like... here's the thing it's not overflated at all. It's all completely true. It's all based in my experience of you and having the opportunity to get to know you over the last year and know about the work that you and your company is doing. So. Ain't nothing inflated about none of it. This is who you are, Matthew. It's humbling to hear that. And if humble pie ever tasted good, then I think it'd be easier <laughs> to digest. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so fasten your seatbelts, folks. This is going to be a super fun, interesting conversation because Matthew and I both like to have fun and we both like to challenge our brains. So... I'm going to start how I often start, which is, what is something that you've become aware of that either you or other people were not paying attention to? And sometimes that inattention is conscious, and sometimes it's not conscious. And then what's been the cost of that inattention? Oh, wow. I think the easiest one to pick at, the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> is what the science journals would refer to as normalcy bias. Normalcy bias. Ooh, that sounds juicy. Okay, what's that? Normalcy bias. If you rewind in your mind back to March of 2020, mm -hmm. and much of the prevailing collective wisdom of the time, in America anyway, was that, oh yeah, this will be like, you know, SARS or something. I mean, even if it was even acknowledged, like, oh, just tell right. me when this is over so I can go back to my, you know, Starbucks routine or, yep. or back to normal, right? Like how often normal. did you hear back to normal? When are we going to get, when back? are we going to get back to normal? You still hear it. You still yep. hear it. And I think that's, there's a science behind this. And the science is that our brains are wired to crave that. What back to normal means is bring me back to comfort. Bring me back to what is familiar. What's forgotten and the cost of that is over time, then it becomes that same sense of comfort brings you into a rut. Uh. It brings you into a rut to a pattern of behavior that then becomes difficult to break out of. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's very insidious because over time, that sense of comfort can lead you to a source of pain. Oh, that's brilliant. I heard somebody the other day say, when was the last time that you experienced significant growth while also being in your comfort zone? How about right? never? Like ever? never, like never, <laughs> ever, ever. We don't grow personally. We don't grow professionally. We don't grow as organizations. We don't grow as societies when we are in our comfort zone. Unfortunately, right now, we're so far out of our, of our collective comfort zone. And I think back to TV shows and other kind of cultural icons that have come along that have kind of cemented that idea of, oh, man, like back in the good old days, things were easier. Back, you know, like I think about happy days when I was growing up, that's going to date me. 
But like those shows, right? Hey, those shows that painted a really sweet, kind of fuzzy, very nice feeling veneer over our past experiences. And that's sort of the way that we remember our past in the parts of our past that were good. You know, I think back to Christmases when I was growing up and it's all of these Hallmark moments. And of course, there were some Hallmark moments, but there was also like life that got in the way and things got messy. And but that's not how we remember it, thinking back into the idyllic recesses of our brains. And so I think, you know, while on the one hand, like this idea of longing for how it used to be and, you know, what was normal, what was comfortable feels normal. That feels that feels like a normal response to have. It also has been feeling to me very much over the last year and a half, like we have to get used to, we need to learn how to exercise our resiliency muscle. We need to lean into agility. So when we think about our brains and how our brains are wired, what are our opportunities to, and, and with all that you know about bias um, and cognitive science, what are our opportunities to use our brain to help us as opposed to what our brain often is wired to do, which is to thwart us when we're uncomfortable because our brain likes comfort? Yeah, it's a great question. The starting point I believe is most effective is built around understanding biases. So what are biases, Matthew? Biases are both conscious and unconscious. So if we're talking about, first of all, cognitive biases, that is a whole nother realm of understanding. And that's the first area that I differentiate. And when you anchor a conversation in cognitive biases, it's less threatening, it's less triggering, it's more fascinating and deeply curious. I mean, who doesn't want to learn more about how their brains work? Right. And so what I found is that when you're exploring cognitive biases, an easy one to start with is like me bias. Mm. And like me bias is our propensity to gravitate towards people, places, and things that are like us. Mm -hmm. And that may be rooted in our experience, right? That might be rooted in a place. Maybe it's an alma mater, right? Mm -hmm. There's definitive research that shows our brains are wired in such a way that when you identify with a sport team, for example, mm -hmm. if you're not one of those who's a fanatic for a sport, you probably know somebody that is. Yes. That person, right, that is the fanatic for that sport, when they're watching their team play mm -hmm. and their team is doing something that is wonderful, score a mm -hmm. touchdown, score a goal, yep. whatever that might be their brains are firing in the exact same areas as if they themselves were doing that act. Oh, that's fascinating. So, <laughs> well, my home of birth team is the New Orleans Saints, but my home of growing up team is the New England Patriots, which makes my husband crazy because he was born in New York. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's a little bit of a New York Boston rivalry in the domain of oh sports. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. 
And then he moved to Los Angeles. And there's also a bit of a Los Angeles, Boston thing. So when he's watching any of my teams <laughs> do poorly, he gets very excited. And when he's watching his teams do well, he gets very excited. And that's because in his brain, it's like he's there on the field. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Are firing. That's the first part of it. Because you mentioned Boston and New York, this reminded me of this research. They took people who were avid Red Sox fans. Yes. And they asked them a simple question, like how close is Yankee Stadium? Mm. And those people that were avid Red Sox fans, on average, stated that it was much, much closer than what it actually is from huh. Boston. It's about 200 miles. Because in actuality, what the researchers were attempting, the theory was that yeah. they perceived them as a threat at some level. And so when you perceive somebody as a threat, then you're more cautious uh, and then therefore conservative about their yeah. estimates of how close they may be. So this type of cognitive bias, and most of these are, you know, you could say it's a conscious bias, right? Like if you're a fanatic for a given team, yep. then it's pretty clear. You know, you right, love that team. Exactly, right? <laughs> I'm a University of Michigan grad yep. and, yep. Uh, you know, Buckeyes come into the room and I have to really, there's some dissonance <laughs> at best that's happening in my brain to overcome that bias and make that connection, but it's not impossible. I think that the subsequent studies that are really, really fascinating are when you are presented with context that doesn't align with what you identify with. So hang with me on this. Like if you are given a math problem that is asking you to solve in a context that you don't value. So whether it be a political context or whether yep. it be, you know, somebody's asking me how many Ohio State grads are going to go <laughs> on a bus and then go from here to there. Like your brain is limited in its capacity. You actually have more mathematical errors given a context that doesn't align with your like-minded bias. Wow. <laughs> like, so I won't do math well if, which I won't do well anyway. So I won't speak the English language well. So I was an English political science major. So I won't use my words well, which is something that I have a bias towards. I like people who use their words well. I like it when I use my words well. I will be less able to use my words well if we are in a context in which I do not identify. That's what the research is telling us. Wow. Yes. yes. That's hot and frightening. Because if you extend it, the... like you were saying math, math may be the exception, right? Because I think you were alluding to, you don't do math well in any context, whether exactly. it be right. like or not. <laughs> but, but a step very tightly coupled with mathematical skills is logical reasoning, okay. rational yep. thought. Yep. And now when you take that and apply it to like our societal discourse and the polarization that takes place and our befuddlement on why the other can't be fill in the blank, right. rational, logical, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like part of it is rooted in the way our brains are wired to process information. Oh my gosh, this is so interesting. And I can see... My brain is now going down a couple of very different paths 
One is, and I'll just say what this is and we can talk about it for a second and then move on. So one is back to Boston and New York. My husband, because he grew up in this New York Yankees, LA Lakers world, and because he's also Black, and there were some problems in Boston related to race issues, and there were some problems in Boston related to race issues connected to sports, he has a real bias against Boston and against sort of the whole Boston environment. So I didn't grow up in Boston. I grew up in Cambridge. And anybody who knows anything about the greater Boston area knows that Boston and Cambridge ain't the same thing by miles. And he doesn't care. He can't get out of Boston is bad to really have an authentic experience like coming home with me to hang out with my family and all the things that we do that have nothing to do with sports. I mean, I didn't really grow up in a sports family, so my family isn't geared around sports. But his brain has become so wired, this idea around the threat of the opposing team, and then you layer the race issues on top of it, but the threat of the opposing team, that he would be going into like a threatening place, a hostile territory. That helps me let go of some of my like, that happens in my brain about his bias against Boston. That helps me release some of my annoyance. How did he look past your Boston part of your identity? (laughs) Well, I don't have the Park the Car and the Harvard Yard. (laughs) I, I can do it. I know many people who do it. I know what Wicked Awesome looks like and sounds like and is like. I have friends. uh, And and you are not that. (laughs) And I am not that. And so I think that helped a little. (laughs) That's awesome. Plus, I think you just thought I was cute. So, you know. (laughs) That's helpful. It's helpful. And there we go. Let's segue (laughs) on to that bias, the beauty bias, and how pretty people get treated preferentially versus what's not standard beauty. Oh, man. So I want you to talk more. But the thing that I want to say here about this is, you know, I am a human. You and I have talked about this. I'm a human who has spent my life in a bigger than average body and who has battled with my weight my whole life. And I have spent a lot of my life feeling like I don't fit in because I don't conform to that beauty bias. Where we ever got the idea that we are all supposed to look the same, like, you know, Madison Avenue, I don't know why we ever got this idea that all bodies are supposed to look the same, that there's one way of being beautiful, that women are supposed to fill in the blank. And this idea of conformity with beauty bias, I think, gets in the way of so many different things in our lives. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I realized at some point after I started doing work in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion and and looking at biases, I realized I have a bias. And what I used to say was, I have a bias against women who are thin because I'm not. And the story in my head says, well, if you're thin, your life is perfect, right? Because that's what the fairy tale is. If you're thin, your life is perfect. And so I don't want to know you. I don't like people who are perfect. That's not very interesting. And then I realized, no, that's actually not what my bias is. So then I thought it was, I have a bias against women who are naturally thin. 
And then I realized, no, that's actually not what my bias is. <laughs> my bias, you know, it's a combination of like me bias and beauty bias. So it's women who are naturally thin and white. Because I realized, like, I have friends who are naturally thin and Asian and black. And like, I ain't got nothing about that. It's women who are naturally thin and of Western European <laughs> descent. Because it's like me. Once I distinguished that, it was like, okay, so if I walk into a room and there's a naturally thin white woman, I'm going to have a thing that I now know is there. And because I know it's there, then I can release it and I can be with her just as her. But like what kind of mischief gets created in the world when we haven't distinguished that, when we haven't figured out what our biases are? Yeah, you just step through step one, right? Is becoming aware you need to take action, right? And the action is finding that person and then creating that common ground. Because you know, you're aware, you're not going to just automatically walk away from that person or avoid that person, right? Because you think less of them. Now that you're aware can be proactive and reach out and find some common ground and more likely than not have a new friend that you right. never had before if you weren't aware of your own internalized biases. Yeah. And so how can we do that in the real world? Let's put aside COVID because, you know, we're less in the world with other people than we might like to be at the moment. But even in the COVID world, I was at an event last night. Everybody was vaccinated. It was all fine. Nobody was wearing a mask. It was, you know, we were able to be together. And a lot of us have gotten much better at being real and authentic in this Zoom world. So what are the tips or tricks or opening lines or, you know, whatever you could think of that we can use to get into step two? So we've distinguished our bias. We've realized like, oh, I have a thing about people who are whatever, fill in the blank. So I come to an event or I'm on Zoom or we're in a breakout room and I am with somebody who is in that category. How do I start to find those commonalities? Well, I want to kind of parse out what you were describing yes, as, please. as COVID versus not COVID and in-person versus a Zoom-based event or some other video platform. Although I have a definitive bias for Zoom. Can't freaking stand Microsoft Teams. And yes, I said it. Microsoft Teams. I hate it. Hate it. I was on a Cisco platform the other day, which I thought like, they've been doing this forever. Cisco, this is going to be great. No, it was glitchy and weird. So I'm with you. I have a bias towards Zoom. And, <laughs> and there's and a reason the be... founder of, of Zoom left Cisco, right? Like, they were, they we were stuck. They were stuck. They had an institutionalized bias in the way right? they were, and they didn't want to do a new way to develop. And so yep. that's a common pattern, not only in the tech sector, but across the board. And we can unpack that one a little bit more. Well, how do you create connection? I'm paraphrasing now and in doing some creative interpretation, but how do you create connection in a virtual world? And one of the things that you've been privy to that I've been doing with a handful of other trusted advisors and coaches and consultants is meeting every Wednesday to explore an amazing formula for creating connection. 
And the formula is 60 minutes, but rather than taking 60 minutes and allowing one person to just go blah, 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 for any length of time, which is a fool's game in the virtual world, we have so like unlimited, unlimited levels of distraction. I don't really know anybody's brain that hasn't been subject to at least the little twitch of the phone to see what the notification was or, you know, or who was actively having another window open and doing other things. Like nobody that I've met on this planet is disciplined enough to just be for that length of time. Like we can all do it for a short window of time. Maybe your listeners have already dialed off and (laughs) gone on to something else. But if they're still listening, then we're capable of doing it, right? In this, what I think the virtual world is and what we've learned from the Wednesday inclusive leadership in a virtual world series is that when you shift your thinking about how you're going to hold that space and think about it for 60 minutes, how can you best engage the people who are there? And when you're very intentional about how you're going to engage them, it's really amazing it can be even more productive than if you had those same people all in the same physical room for the same amount of time, right? right? What we forget or what we're learning actually is that when you're all in the same physical space, a lot of shit happens organically. And I hope it's okay to swear on your podcast. It's fine. Yep. Forgive me if I dropped an S-bomb and that was not (laughs) welcome. No, our listeners know I swear for accuracy, not for effect. (laughs) So there is shit that happens. <laughs> that is an accurate statement. <laughs> and that shit that happens when you're in the same physical space with people is primarily organic and nonverbal. And a lot of it's rooted in our unconscious biases that we're just not aware of because mm-hmm. they're unconscious. Now, when you're in a virtual world, you can be far more explicit Mm -hmm. in how you structure the meeting itself, the way people will engage with each other. And you give them guidelines and context and frameworks for them to then have more meaningful discussions that can go beyond the surface, Mm -hmm. right? Where in-person gathering, it's much more subjective as to how people get below the surface. And it kind of either happens or it doesn't. But in a virtual context, you can actually put in more structures to help facilitate below the surface conversation, if that makes any sense. Totally makes sense. And I have had the privilege of participating in a lot of these Wednesday inclusive leadership series meetings. So if somebody out there wants to come and check it out, how would they find it? The easiest way is go to percipiocompany.com, P-E-R-C-I-P-I-O company.com and scroll down a little bit. Second section, inclusive leadership in a virtual world, register here. Awesome. And we will also, in the show notes, we will have a registration link and there will be a link to Matthew's company as well as ways to find him. So please check out the show notes for all of that awesomeness. Oh my gosh. I'm flashing back to like an Austin Powers movie where they do the gratuitous plug. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the 
that's not a gratuitous plug. <laughs> I am not telling you, you know, go get Cisco systems. I'm you just not. told your in audience fact, how many inclusive leadership wins they see. <laughs> I'm telling you, participate in the inclusive leadership series because if you're a new listener to the podcast or if you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you know that what we love to talk about here is all of the things that are happening in the world that we have not been paying enough attention to. And what Matthew is creating, has created in his inclusive leadership series are deep dives into specific areas where there's a lot more opportunity to delve. And a lot of it has to do with personal and professional growth. Some of it has to do with how do we step more into our own leadership, the one this morning because we are recording on a Wednesday afternoon. The one this morning was all about toxic leadership and the ways in which we might be the toxic leader and the ways in which we can work inside of our organizations to battle toxicity when it occurs and you know what we can do and strategies and, and all of that goodness. So there've been so many incredible, great conversations and it's totally free and it's super participatory. So it is the highlight of my week. And that's one of the things that is always said in that meeting by somebody. This is the highlight of my week. And, you know, occasionally something will come up and I'm not able to be there, but almost always I am there because it's awesome. And you've created a really great space. It really is. The person who is speaking this morning, his name is Raj Subramayer. And what I love most about what he did for the group is what we attempt to do every week is create a self-reflective space. And he led with that. He was talking about toxicity in the workplace, but not saying them, 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 other, other, other. He was saying, this was my experience. And I found myself being that toxic guy. And when you lead that way, this is really all about inclusive leadership is leading with vulnerability. What does that actually mean? I think there's still a stigma against being vulnerable and there's an instinctual element. So there's also a societal pressure to not do that. But I think there's also an instinctual wiring to not do that. It's based in self-preservation. You don't want to be vulnerable because you fear you're going to get hurt. So I want to dig into that a little bit more. And, you know, our brain is wired. Nope. Don't say that. Don't expose yourself. You know, do not expose your underbelly. Don't let them see that. And as a man, you know, women in general, let's speak in terms of stereotypes here for a second. In general, most women have been socialized to have an easier time with emotions, to have an easier time with vulnerability. In general, most men have not been socialized in that way. And so the idea, you know, the queen of vulnerability, Brene Brown, is a woman, not shocking. And so as a man who works in the business world, helping companies and helping executives and doing some work in big companies and small companies and everything in between, how do you help people lean into vulnerability, let go of the bias that vulnerability equals weakness? You know, talk for a little bit about how you see that world and how you help people lean into that. Well, you know, worshiping at St. Bernays altar is a great. (laughs) It's true. 
<laughs> I too am a fellow congregant. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great starting point. Uh, right? Give him one of her books. Uh, pick a book. It doesn't matter. <laughs> when you were talking a moment ago, you were saying professional and personal growth. Mm-hmm. And I want to pick that apart for a moment. I think that it's becoming less and less relevant mm. uh, to, to differentiate mm-hmm. because we live in an information age. I mean, we're not in an industrial age anymore. Mm-hmm. And we've been in it for, I mean, you could draw an arbitrary line, right? Do you want to say 2000? Y2K? Remember that? Right. Remember Y2K? That, <laughs> and how frightening that was? was? Fall apart. Right. I could say now, like that could have been definitive turning point from industrial age to information age. Mm-hmm. And that's also a millennial marker. Like you right. know, there's easy ways to point to that point way. Yep. In time and say that was it. But that was 21 years ago. Exactly. This, this is my point. These biases go so deep. <laughs> they run so deep into our societal structures. And over time, that's how bias becomes institutionalized. So when I say societal structures, I'm using that, I'm thinking specifically about institutionalized biases. Mm -hmm. Men are supposed to be this way. Women are supposed to be that way. And we have so many things in our world that reinforce that as a norm. And, you know, what we're now embarking on is at least a partial deconstruction of what those are. And I think it's only partial because it's really just begun. I think we're trending in a direction to fully deconstruct these established institutionalized biases around race and gender and culture and age. And we're busting up these stereotypes, Mm -hmm. right? The stereotypes you mentioned earlier, I will always defer to another amazing thought leader in this space. You ready? Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She is a brilliant author, speaker. She's a New York Times bestseller. Her line about stereotypes is something I go to often. The line is, The danger of stereotypes, or she calls them single stories. The danger of single stories is not that they may be true, but that they're always incomplete. And when you think about that for a moment, right? Like whatever stereotype it is, maybe it is true. Maybe, you know, all men are assholes or all women are crybabies (laughs) or whatever. Like like maybe that is true for a moment, but it's not the whole story. Right. Because I am an asshole sometimes. I'm also a crybaby sometimes. I'm also <laughs> I'm also a lot of things, right? That right. are very transactional and transient and fleeting. And they're not the whole story. What I love most about the work that I do and the point at which I see us as a collective mm-hmm. is that we are dismantling those stereotypes. Now we're creating new ones simultaneously, but we're, we're, <laughs> we're dismantling some of the ones that have been around a long time and have done way too much damage to way too many people over a period of time. I love that concept. And we will have a link to her and some of her work as well in our show notes. I will get the spelling of her name from Matthew after this, because she's somebody with whom I'd not been aware of her before this moment, which is one of the things that I love about this digital age in which we are. I think it's one of the things, one of the silver linings in this whole pandemic is how people 
to meet, to become connected, to become friends in a before world, in a normal world, in a pre-world, are having those opportunities and those connections now. I mean, you're in the Bay Area. I'm in Los Angeles. It would not have been as easy for us to meet and become as connected as I feel to you in a pre-Zoom world. Yeah, I think I would only push a little bit on the timing of it. I think eventually it would have happened, but Mm -hmm. COVID just accelerated it. You know, imagine if COVID would have happened instead of March of 2020, like in March of, of 2010, when video conferencing, the internet, the bandwidth, the technology just wasn't there yet to allow for this. Yeah. We're getting real-time communication and recording it. <laughs> and I can, you know, like, like, there's no lag. There's no like dribbles and it's crystal clear. Right. It allows us to connect with each other. And so going back to the brains for a moment, mm-hmm. our brains store information in bits, mm-hmm. right? And this is an oversimplification and it's a bit of a metaphor. It's not literal. Okay. So I just want to make sure if there's some, you know, neuroscientist listening, I'm not talking literal. I'm talking figuratively, but the model is helpful for understanding how our brains work and our brains store information in bits and snapshots. It's the reason why when you see somebody's kid after four years, your first reaction is what, Janine? God, he's so big. Exactly. Because in your brain, you still (laughs) remember them how they were, right? And the beauty of that is that your brain is processing about a million bits of information every second of every day. And so it needs to store them in little binary constructs. Mm -hmm. Now, over time, that's magnificent. And in the moment, it's brilliant. But over time, it can pose some problems, right? It can pose a lot of problems when you can't move beyond those binaries or beyond that snapshot and see more holistic picture in that moment. And that's where I think we run into a lot of problems. You can fill in the blank with, racial categories or gender categories, or the ones you were referring to earlier about skinny women and skinny white women. Like you really have to train your brain to move beyond the binary so that you can appreciate a more holistic and a deeper sense of who a person is or where a place is or, you know, or what a thing is. Uh, There's so much in there. And, you know, we all know people who we know them well. And then suddenly we find out something about something that's been going on. I was, as we are recording this, my little brother just landed 24 hours ago and he's on a huge new adventure. And the week before he went to Kenya, there were many hiccups in his plan. And if you didn't know me well, and you didn't know me in some particular contexts, you wouldn't have known that that was happening in my life at all. And it was the hiccups were a big deal. And I was managing my emotions around that and managing my 80 year old parents emotions around that. And now all is well, and he's off on his adventure, but it was a hell of a week. And so there's always things that even in the people that we know, that we think we know the best, there's always other stuff going on. And so I think the more that we can lean into that idea, and I do not have this woman's name yet fixed in my brain, 
that, you know, yes, while that thing may be true, it's only a teeny piece of the picture. And so, you know, while I might know Matthew, Matthew has a whole lot else that's going on in his life and that makes up who Matthew is. And so I think two words that keep coming into my world, grace and curiosity. And the more that we can grant each other grace, you know, I am perfect. Ain't nobody I know perfect. And yet we hold ourselves to standards of perfection. And then we hold other people to standards of perfection that nobody can achieve. So if we can have grace towards ourselves and others, and if we can get curious about ourselves and others, we have so much more opportunity for that authentic connection and for revealing to ourselves the biases that we might have had that like, oh, wait, I didn't know gay people thought that, or I didn't know someone who was gay would think that, or someone who was black would think that, or someone who was Latino would think that, or, you know, it gives us so much of an opportunity to reveal to ourselves, like what our misconceptions are, what our limits of experience are, what our biases are. If we're open to learning that about ourselves, when we're open to hearing that about ourselves. Yeah, I think grace and curiosity are two distinctive, inclusive leadership skills. Those are two Mm. named skills and they're actions. They're things that you have to practice, extending grace and being curious. Mm -hmm. I think those are the actions that inclusive leaders need to demonstrate in order to create this ever elusive culture of belonging, starting the podcast and mentioning the relatively recent B to the DEI Mm -hmm. dance. I've been doing this long enough to remember when corporate America, and I'll just say it that way and pause so everybody can get a clear idea of what corporate America, what their idea of corporate America is. 20 Uh years ago, the party line was, we need to tolerate diversity. And that was it. (laughs) It was just a D. There was no EI or B. It was just D. And we need to tolerate it. And we need to tolerate it. You tolerate a rash. You tolerate something (laughs) that you want to go away. Like the language was so offensive. That's where it was at 20 years ago. And it didn't last long until the new language was, well, we can't have diversity without inclusion. And then, you know, you get a lot of the cute little sayings around, you know, diversity is a ticket to the dance and, you know, or, or to the, you know, the entry ticket and inclusion is being asked to dance or so diversity and inclusion are very important. But then when you get into the institutional or the structural barriers that exist in the workplace, wow, we need to have equity here. Like it's, we need to build that in and we have to be very intentional about it. And so that was, I think, riding a nice course and it's relatively recent. You still don't hear, I call it the ever elusive B because it's not in a lot of circles yet. It's getting there, but it's also getting pretty long. I mean, it's like LGBTQ, like like (laughs) there's just more and more, you know, letters that get added on. And I appreciate it. I do. But there's a certain audacity that's added when you want to try to allow and create a culture of belonging, because Mm -hmm. you're now talking about fundamental human need, where there's some that would argue that the need to be needed is greater than the need to survive. Mm-hmm. And the evidence of that is suicide. And if people, you know, they would never kill themselves. They wouldn't override their own survival instinct 
if their need to belong was met. Being met, yeah. And so I think for any workplace to have that be an aspirational goal is magnificent Mm -hmm. because I believe that's what's needed in this information age that we find ourselves in. There's still jobs that are physical labor. There are still jobs that are physical in nature, but any job that requires you to think you can't think without being, you, I think, therefore I am, right? Right, like, right. <laughs> philosophically, you're just there. And so this notion that you can be something in one context and then be something else in another context, it's kind of silly, actually. Nonsense, right. And, uh, but that's what, we, that's what we believed. I am this way at work and I am that way at home. And I check my home self at the door when I go to work. And how long has that been the paradigm? And only now is it really beginning to shift? And like, no, actually, I am one whole human and I'm the same me at work and at home, like it or lump it. Yep. I think the line was, you know, very porous years ago, but it's been completely eradicated in COVID. Yeah. Well, I am just suddenly becoming aware of the time. I think we set a record, Janine. This is your longest podcast. I think it's the longest podcast. I told (laughs) Matthew it probably would be. So I I hope this has been as fun for y'all listening as it has been for me and hopefully for Matthew as well. So before I wrap it up, Matthew, I'm going to give you one last moment. If there's something where you would love to leave people with, Do you have something you want to throw in here? Yeah, I think there's an old axiom about not talking about politics and religion in polite discourse. Yeah. So when you meet people, you just avoid those topics as if they were taboo or, and I think the world is changing a bit and there's a need to move beyond those linguistic constructs and those widespread blanket categories because we're all far more nuanced than just one thing. And I think the problem with that statement is that it's relegating somebody to just one thing and it's all bad. And it's back into that binary, you know, good, bad, evil, uh, you know, good or evil. And I think in the workplace, you know, maybe it's not politics and religion are just trigger words for a lot of people. Rather than saying politics, let's talk about personal because I think the personal is political. But personal doesn't necessarily instill a fear. You know, if somebody wants to know something personal about you, it's most often perceived as invitation to get to know you, Mm -hmm. right? So that diffuses Mm -hmm. one. And for religious things, like the other thing that's not taboo in the workplace is energy or spirit, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We want positive energy and, you know, people with good spirit. And yet it's not a far stretch. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Energy and spirit to energy and spirit. (laughs) Right, right, right. Not a far stretch. But, you know, religion is just the formalization of different interpretations of energy and spirit. And that's a vast, super oversimplification. Yes. My point is there's language that exists that we can use to connect with one another, right? And to rewire our brains, and to allow us to recreate this planet. Because if we don't recreate this planet, we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Again, accuracy. <laughs> so that's what I want to leave your listeners with. <laughs> All right. So get unfucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
let's start connecting about the things that actually matter to us and where we can really have authentic, real conversations and really get to know the people. Because what is, is that this body <laughs> that I have fought with for so much of my life is merely a container for the me that is within, for the you that is within. And, you know, that's what we really want. That's what we really want to know. And that's what we really want to be known. Belonging and that feeling of being known and seen. I think that's our work for the future of us. That's it. Matthew, this has been a joy and a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom. I just adore you. Thank you, Janine. We'll start our mutual admiration society as of today. <laughs> awesome. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. I'm beginning to think